where three orthodox women discuss all of the amazingly nerdy things that we are completely obsessed with. My name is Michal Schick, and I'm your host, and I'm joined by my wonderful co-hosts, Essam Rosenberg. Hi. And Tamar Herman. Hello. And today we have a really special guest with us. Uh, we have clinical psychologist Dr. Abigail Gordon, who has a real degree in stuff. Hi. <laughs> Hi, Abigail. Well, t- tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, I am a clinical psychologist. Uh, I have a master's degree in trauma studies and a PhD in clinical psychology. Um, and I've been working with patients for around seven years, eight years. Gosh, I don't even know how long now. Um and I am also a certified nerdy Jewish fangirl. Um, so I am very excited to be here. Awesome. What would you consider your, like, top fandoms? Oh, gosh. That is a very difficult question for me. Um, it is, I yes. Think, <laughs> I think the one for me would probably be, like... be books in all of their iterations because I have an insane book collection uh when I moved into my house the movers kept stopping and looking at me and going you know you've got a lot of books um so books generally uh Jane Austen was probably one of my first real fandoms so she gets a shout out um and now I would say the stuff that I love now is I would say broadly feminist female forward media in general love Jane the Virgin love crazy ex-girlfriend a lot of stuff like that Um, I don't know it's hard for me to narrow down there's just a lot of things I love (laughs) no that's awesome Um, Well, the reason we have Abigail here with us today uh, is because we're going to be talking about mental health in uh, fiction. It's another one of those episodes that I'm like, this probably won't be our only episode about this because it's a big topic. Um, But we're going to get to that in just a sec. First, of course, we're going to start with our current obsessions. So Tamar, why don't you kick us off with COs for this week? Cool. Yeah. So my current obsession, I, I don't remember, I feel like maybe Michal did this ages ago. Um, and the Ember, an Ember and the Ashes series by Saba Tahir. Uh, have either of you, has anybody read it? No, I haven't. I don't know why I thought you had, but. It sounds um, like me. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I saw that we followed her on our official account on Twitter. So I was like, who added her? Uh, so I kind of assumed it was you, but yeah, so I just started reading this. I'm up to the, the, so I thought it was a trilogy and I got to the end of the third book and like at 10 pages were left. I was like, oh no, this is not a trilogy. <laughs> this is really annoying. Um, I, cause three books were out. So I kind of just got it in my head. Uh, but pretty much it's like a very interesting fantasy book based on Middle Eastern myths. So there's like jinns and ifrits and all this stuff going on. And there's also like this really intense, um, military state and then there's people enslaved and it's really really I wouldn't say it's complex because it's like a YA book um, but it's very intense and uh, it has like a lot of questioning about like morality like there's a lot of like reversals in each book um, where you find out that YA books can be complex 
No, 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 I'm not just saying it's not complex. Rest, I'm just up. saying, like, <laughs> it's, it's really complex to explain, like, even what it's about. But pretty much mm-hmm. it's about, like, a, a girl who is a, who's part of the slave class, um, a guy who is part of a warrior class, and his friend who is also a warrior, and their, like, difficulties in this world and how they all, you know, encounter each other and what they go through and what's going on. And, and it's really interesting, especially the third book, I actually, I read it on Shabbos last week and I like really, it doesn't say in the back what um, Sabatihir's background is, but as I was reading it, I was wondering, and I still wonder, even though I found out after Shabbos that she's Pakistani, of Pakistani descent, I believe, um, I was wondering if she was Palestinian because the, like, the storyline is very much based around the idea of, like, the the main, one of the main characters, like I said, is a slave girl and, like, she's from a, 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 like a culture that's always, you know, they're always refugees. They're always shoved around, always being treated by different countries who don't want them. And there's like a very interesting scene in the third book where essentially a leader, this is a spoiler, sorry. Like a leader essentially says like, we want to help you, but we can't. You have like, you just have to stay in your refugee camp. Um, Which, sorry, I'm getting a little political shocked. Um, it was just like making me really wonder like, Oh, I wonder what her experiences are, like what, what she drew inspiration from. So I just, I thought it was a really interesting read. I think it's, it's not based in, you know, so much why fantasy is like based in, you know, Eurocentric mythology or yeah. Um, or like poorly done other stuff, but this one's like, you can clearly tell where the storyteller is coming from, what she's, kind of drawing in like there's it's, it's really interesting like there's a lot about colonizers and who who is at fault for the way the world is so hmm. I really enjoy it and I think if you like like kick-ass girls like this book has them if you like not kick-ass girls this book also has them um, <laughs> who doesn't like not <laughs> I mean one yeah. of the best characters is just like a good person like that's like who she is that's and- kick-ass and yeah, no, 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 but it's not as it's not as radical. But like in the face of like being tortured by this crazy person, um, like niceness is radical. So like there's just like a lot of really interesting, complex characters, and then there's some who are just like you're not complex, and then you find out like 20 pages later, like they're the most complex being on the planet. Uh, <laughs> so I just really liked her writing. I liked her style. I felt like there weren't many times when I was just like. I don't know. I find a lot of day- times nowadays when I read a book, it's very predictable. And this was to some degree, but there were some things that were just like, absolutely nobody on the planet knows, like, or nobody in this world knows. So then how would I have ever assumed that? So it's just really, really interesting. I want to, I, I kind of hope the fourth book is the last book because I don't understand how she could keep going and going and going. But I also said that about the Sarah J. Mass books. So. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, an Emperor in the Ashes series by Sabati here, I I would suggest. Awesome. Yeah, I've I've heard really good things about um Sabati here. Um SM, what are your current obsessions or obsession singular? Sorry, didn't mean to box you into doing multiples. <laughs> oh, but uh, I would do. happily do multiples. I, feel <laughs> I actually do have a lot of things too, but <laughs> I picked one. Yeah, oh my god, I've watched like seven different TV shows since we last spoke. Um well, because you know what happened? We, we like, recorded in the middle of, of, like, the holidays. So once the holidays were over, it was like, oh, my God, I have all this time. I'm just going to watch all this TV and read all these books and do all this stuff. So 
that's my theory. Yeah, so I can say that, like, because of the holidays, um, I got this obsession um, because I work at a synagogue and holiday time, high holidays especially, is completely bonkers. Um, and, And I was just, you know, doing so many things and juggling so much stuff and getting all of these you know I work in communications and there's just like so many emails that have to go out and so many things that have to get printed and just like it's bananas so my uh I gave I gave myself I treated myself I uh I took a leaf out of uh uh, Parks and Rec book and I treated myself and and I bought this projector that my brother had recommended for a long time it's like trying to think of a compare a size comparison it's like the the size of like Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, you know, um, and it's just slightly more rectangular or maybe slightly more square, whatever bad it shapes. Um, and it has built-in speakers and it connects to um, by USB. You can put a USB stick in it if you have that, and that's what my brother has um, as his setup. But I um, I just connect my HDMI. I ran all over my neighborhood trying to find an HDMI cable, and I learned that they do not sell them at gas stations, and they do not sell them at 7-Elevens. <laughs> but then I went to an actual computer store, and uh, they had HDMI cable, and so I could hook up my computer and watch literally anything that I can watch on my computer. I can project onto this uh, onto a wall or a ceiling if I want to, and it's just this big, beautiful, high-def picture, and it's just amazing. Awesome. That's a good feeling. <laughs> Now I'm I'm just imagining watching uh like a movie on the ceiling and I'm like isn't that kind of like when you are the last people in a movie theater and you have to sit like right in front of the screen and you're basically well, I mean, the thing is can you can put the movie on the ceiling and then lie down on your bed and then you're just like lying down and staring straight up you know as opposed to sitting and having to lean your head all the way back you're yeah just, I like, staring straight. I get um, nauseous when I do that. Really? Yeah, like I I can't read. I mostly bed. watch on the wall. <laughs> it's yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> I'm just I'm just I'm saying almost, like. <laughs> yeah. The well, idea of not, watching. I have not vertically. actually yet tried it on the ceiling, but I know that it is possible, and I am excited to try because I do not have, fortunately, those kind of vertigo issues. Okay, so um, my uh, current obsession um, is actually um, another book. Um, I have seen this book like mentioned around it kind of like came out of nowhere and then I realized that it came out of nowhere because it came out like this summer and so did the sequel which is it messed with my head but um I'm reading um The Calculating Stars by Mary Robinette Cowell and it is so good (laughs) it's so good it's an Olaf recommendation um Orthodox Ladies United in Fandom our Facebook group and um it's about it's like set in an alternate 1950s where a meteorite uh slams into washington dc and destroys a good chunk of the eastern seaboard and uh so that's bad and um it kicks off this whole like climate disaster so basically nasa becomes uh kind of you know starts early and they start uh you know ramping up the space program like on hyperspeed literally so that they can move humanity off the planet um and the main character is uh dr elma york who is a jewish southern uh 
physicist uh, in the 1950s who is lovingly married to Dr. Nathaniel York, who is a Jewish uh, Southern, maybe, (laughs) physicist, also from the 50s. And they're so cute together. And I just, like, it's a very sci-fi book in that, like, she will pause. It actually reminded me a lot of um, Cordelia's Honor when I read that because it kind of, like, you know, will, will, like, she'll just pause and, like, explain the science. And, like, sometimes emotional things will happen, but she'll filter it through the scientific kind of, like, mode first before the emotions kick in. And, um, yeah, so I, I it's it's really well written. It's really well researched. It's kind of, like, um, it's a lot like Hidden Figures. I actually really think this would make an amazing, like, movie or TV series or something. Um, and, uh, yeah, again, main character, totally Jewish. Like, she you know almost everything mary robinette's not jewish but um almost every thing every jewish related thing in the book uh seemed really on point to me and um a lot of fun to read i'm not done yet but i i'm really enjoying it i actually ordered the second one because i was like um yeah you know that thing where like you buy the first book in a series and you're like oh well if i like it i'll buy the second one i'm not gonna waste my money yet mm-hmm. Uh, and then I, I realized I was like two thirds of the way down and I was like, I'll probably finish this next job is, and I definitely want to have the next one on hand. So yeah, the, um, it's, I think the duology or series or whatever is called the lady astronaut series. And, uh, yeah, super, super, super awesome. I think eventually she's going to go to Mars. So there's going to be a Jew on Mars and that's going to be cool. Yeah. <laughs> Cause we already have two on Venus. We gotta. Yeah, yes, exactly. Did you finish the book yet? No, I actually, I haven't. Um, I, I ordered um, Wandering Stars, which I've since heard, like, a lot about. Um, I actually only read the uh, introduction by Isaac Asimov, which was interesting with a capital I. Um, but uh, I, I will finish it, and then maybe maybe we can have a discussion about it. Um, I was going to say, if you have it in your apartment, I'm going to just run over it. No, it's, <laughs> it's back in Queens. Ugh. <laughs> oh, I know, sorry. Book collection. I actually don't have, like, any books here. I had two books here because I had Shabbos here one week, but, huh? You need some. Do I need some? (laughs) Uh, You've seen my apartment tomorrow. Tell me exactly where I'm going to be putting these books. Get hanging bookshelves on the walls. I know. I I have some shelves. I'm actually getting my art hung up tomorrow. That's a totally different thing. Um, But, uh, anyway, (laughs) pivoting back to the podcast. Moving out so that I could have actual bookshelves my room and i do now and it is glorious yes um <laughs> it's just i mean i rarely read during the week anyway but um abigail what is your current obsession your your very first obsession ever obviously <laughs> my very first obsession ever um so i always have kind of a bunch of long-standing obsessions but at the moment i'll i'll keep with the theme and give you a book that i recently read and loved um which is Naomi Alderman's The Power. Have any of you read it? No, but I've heard of it. So it's a really great book. It's um, speculative fiction, and it essentially takes the premise that 14-year-old, 15-year-old girls begin to develop this power that they can essentially electrocute people. Um, And then imagines a world in which this is happening that all of the teenage girls are developing this power and then sort of goes from there and really grapples with questions about sort of what 
is inherent in gender um, and sex and what is actually just inherent in having the power to harm others. Um, and I think does a really good job of looking at it in a very nuanced way um, and ultimately a really complex way. Um, and I, I found myself as I was reading it first a little horrified at how much I was able to enjoy or be satisfied at these girls and women being violent. Um, that at first it was sort of a shock to me. Like I didn't expect to be like, yeah, go for it. Um, <laughs> but, but she sort of eases you into it, you know, in that when you first see it happening, it's at people who are trying to hurt the girls. And so it's like, yeah, you defend yourself. Good for you. And it's, I think, a really interesting book. Um, and, and really, I think, timely in terms of thinking about how people use power. Um, and I think as, as a person who sees a lot of stuff saying, well, we need more women in power. And if the women were in power, we would have a kindler, gentler world. Oh, no, I hate those um, people. <laughs> yeah. And this book essentially looks at all of those people and goes, yeah, you haven't thought this through very much, have you? Um, and it, it's, I think, it's a great book. Um, and, I mean, I read a lot. Um, but it's, I think, one of the best things that I've read in quite a long time. Um, so, highly recommend it. <laughs> Ooh, I definitely want to go read this. Yeah, Naomi Alderman also, like, she comes with definitely some cred in that in that area um she's a really interesting writer overall and I say that pretending like I've actually read her work I haven't but I've read interviews with her um her this name. is the first thing of hers that I've ever read yeah so. she, well she wrote she wrote uh disobedience um but that the oh, movie yeah. was based on yeah um so that's kind of like and she grew up orthodox in england and like that's her whole like background and um she's also the person who made the as as far as i know the uh zombies run app which i have used in the past oh <laughs> i've heard of that yeah. <laughs> um i haven't used it in a while so maybe that'll tell you something but i think if you do like moving it's probably a, a good narrative encouragement anyway sidebar um the, that oh go ahead sorry I just the the first thing that I thought of like when you were talking about like you know like oh you like can't like women ruling society might not necessarily be better and I'm wondering if like she looked into like um uh whatchamacallit like matrilineal based societies like historic ones uh, so I mean my impression is that this was less about I think a big part of the premise is that women now physically have power mm. um and it's not just sort of the idea of women are being allowed at the table or even women now are at the table it's that women can enforce the table that, that their their <laughs> ownership of the table uh, um they are the amazons and and kind of i i, I don't want to give too much away for people who who haven't read the book but really I think does a great job at showing how 
partially how the road to hell is paved with good intentions, partially how how easily power can corrupt. Um, and I think she, the book is told from multiple different perspectives. Um, at least one major one of which is a man going through this as a journalist. Um, and I, I, I think she does a really good job of sort of weaving together the the hopefulness of what this initially is and and sort of shows you the perspective of a mother whose child is developing this and a man who's excited by it and wants to be an ally and the fear that comes with being a part of the movement for him and and sort of how how much we can hope that this would be just liberating women from being under the thumb of power, but how impossible it is for that not to slide into abuse of power itself. Um, like power and yeah, I, I'm, I, I was a big fan of it. <laughs> And just am. now, this just reminded me a little bit of Black Lightning, um, because, um, slight spoiler, um, his daughters develop superpowers also, and one of them is having very difficult time controlling them, and you know doesn't want them, and it's there's a whole you know struggle um, with her character about you know accepting the power versus rejecting it and figuring out how to channel it and all that kind of stuff. I'm not expecting it to go anywhere near as dark as you're describing in this book, but um, it just did remind me a little bit of that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the book, it, it does go very dark by the end. Um, and then the, the framing device is essentially told from a, a point way in the future where like the handmaid's tale it, that's what it, i was it, just it, thinking it's kind of like the handmaid's tale but slightly different it's sort of told the framing device is that this is a a book written by a man in the future trying to make the argument that there was a time when women did not have this power oh that's interesting and he's writing to naomi alderman who's sort of gently suggesting that you know, it's a little unrealistic and it's <laughs> not really, I don't know how many people will buy it. Have you considered trying to publish under a woman's name? Uh, <laughs> Amazing. And it's, yeah, no, it's okay, well, you just sold it. <laughs> now, now we have to read this book. Yeah. No, it's, it's I, I think, uh, as you will see when we talk about the mental health things, for me, I am always looking for things that can be kind of looking at the nuance in things because I think everything is more complicated than we tend to want to think it is. Um, so whenever I find books that really grapple with that nuance, I'm kind of obsessed. <laughs> so That's so cool. Oh, okay, I really want to read, read this now. <laughs> awesome. Um Cool. So that I think would be a good segue into our main segment, um, in which we're going to talk about mental health and, uh, yeah, and fiction. Um, 
as I mentioned, this is a big, big topic, um, but I just want to start kind of with an overview um, of where we think, like what, how, how we think mental health and mental illness is kind of used generally um, in fiction. Because I know that I like, I, I feel like it is often kind of a shortcut or a crutch or, you know, done with good intentions usually, I think, but not necessarily, uh, I don't know. Yeah, not not Done necessarily. Well. Yeah, <laughs> well, or or with uh, all of the nuance that it that it needs. Yeah, yeah. They tend to it tends to be oversimplified in a lot of uh, in a lot of media. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Abigail, what what do you think? <laughs> uh, I definitely agree. Um, I think there are a lot of a lot of common problems in the way that mental health and mental health illness is represented in fiction and media in general um usually because it's done in a way that's meant to be a shortcut to communicate something um look i think mental health and mental health problems are particularly complicated to represent because they don't actually look the same in any two people so inherently you're going to have a problem where if even if you do a really great job and you represent one particular story really well you're going to have a lot of people saying but that's not what my experience looks like at all um and so even when it's done well i think it often gets criticized um and I think I've also seen the opposite, that even when there are problems, if it's the slightest bit sympathetic, people are often sort of running to be like, wow, look what a great job you did, when it's still kind of problematic. I'm, I'm thinking in particular about Monk, mm. which was sympathetic and was, you know, he was the main character. Monk is for people who don't know, a television show about a detective with obsessive compulsive disorder. And it is a sympathetic portrayal and it was bringing mental health into media in a way that had not really been done very much and was given awards for it. And, you know, that was great, but it also found a lot of its humor in his symptoms. Mm-hmm. And that was the butt of the joke a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at the beginning, there are people calling him the defective detective. And I think that was even in part of the marketing for the show initially, mm-hmm. um, which I think now wouldn't happen. Um, but back then, because it was so new to even represent mental health issues at all, it was seen as, as a good thing. Um, yeah, I think the other major issue is that often mental health struggles are seen as shorthand for, and I think this is something we can get into in, in more depth, it's seen as shorthand for bad guy. Um, mm-hmm. And it's it's very rare that the complexity can be represented, and a lot of shows take that to an extreme and I think don't really try. Um and that that can be painful to watch 
um, have you from watched the perspective yeah, of working like, with these people? Yeah, like that's that was my issue, especially in like the beginning of the show Gotham, um, because it's just like there are so many, there are so many villains in the show. First of all, um, but there are so many whose villainy is based in insanity. Um, well, I mean, the, the Gotham Asylum is like, yeah, you know, or Arkham like, Asylum is, like, you know. because because that's that's the way the comics are built. But like, there were characters that were not insane in the comics, like the Riddler, and they added in insanity that did not need to be there. You know what I mean? Um, and I've grown to actually be quite fond of Gotham. Um, like one of my favorite uh, new things to do is um, just attempt to explain to my roommate a plot line as the story is unfolding you know and like trying to explain like who this character is and all the different things they've been through which is completely bananas at this point um but the way that they uh, the villains that i find most compelling on gotham are the ones who's who actually you know they they give them serious motives and roots and humanity and you know reasons for why they are the way they are aside from oh they're just psychotic um, yeah. Which is also important because people people with mental health problems are not more likely than people in the general yeah. population to be violent or to commit crimes. It makes crime. it seem like everybody who has mental health issues is dangerous. Right. And, and it's, that it's is actually really, hugely problematic. Yeah. Especially, I mean, I, I think in general, they're not more likely to be be dangerous or to commit crimes they are more likely to be the victims of violence and to hurt um, themselves yeah and it's it's such a dangerous kind of mis mistake to make that that leads to sort of more stigma and more more damage to the way that we treat people with mental health issues which is such a huge issue in itself Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, one of the things I, I, you know, when I was thinking about talking about this topic is, like, it, it seems to me like when heroes suffer from uh, mental illness, it's it seems like it's something that has often happened to them, you know? Um, like, I, I mean, the first character who popped into my mind was Jessica Jones, you know, and she yeah. has an enormous amount of PTSD and substance abuse and, and all that. Um, but that's in a large part due to what she has experienced. Um, whereas villains, a lot of the time, you know, and you could even put the Punisher in that category too. Um, but villains, a lot of the time, are like suffering from something not triggered by external forces, if you know what I mean. Like, like they are, uh, they do have personality They're disorders. Just inherently that way. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah, and maybe I it's exacerbated, but... Yeah, I think that was also part of my issue with Monk, was that they made it seem like his obsessive-compulsive disorder was basically brought on by the death of his wife. Um, right. And that it hadn't been an issue before, which they sort of retconned, which, by, like, incorporating it into his childhood and showing that, like, maybe it had been there, you know, but it, maybe it hadn't been as bad, but, like, they didn't seem to have their story straight on that. Yeah, um, and- and I think in a situation like that, assuming he was a person with obsessive compulsive disorder, it probably would have been exacerbated by the death of his wife. But mm-hmm. you don't 
generally develop OCD out of nowhere. You know? Yeah. <laughs> um, um, and speaking to the hero-villain thing, I think... I don't know if you're familiar with Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, but one of the things that I really appreciate in that show is that it it very consciously tries to flip a lot of these tropes on their head and this is one of them that they really have their heroine dealing with her mental health issues and and at one point really explicitly grapple with this question of whether her her struggles are a product of traumatic childhood experiences or whether they're sort of her own um, and whether she has to take responsibility for her actions or whether she can just sort of say, well, I have this diagnosis. That's, that's all that, that I can do. Um, and I think it's, it's actually a remarkably sensitive portrayal of, of mental health issues of various types actually mm -hmm. well in terms of uh before we get well to actually get into some uh, examples um what um do you guys have i, I mean to, to go with the easy one first um any any other examples of mental health that's like you're like oh that's not right <laughs> like you're just well, you're just not doing about, this well yeah i want to talk about the really um, fairly consistently bad portrayal of therapy and therapists mm. in media. Amen. I feel like the number one trope that I see all the time is this, the mind reading therapist who <laughs> knows the patient inside and out better than they know themselves from the moment they walk in the door and is just there to, you know, make all of these, you know, cutting observations that completely change the way the the character sees themselves and, you know, is obviously always right and understands everything. And, I'm sorry, are we not always right? I, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because the thing is, you know, from speaking to Avi Gail, and Avi Gail can elaborate on this more, and just, like, from what I understand about therapy in general, is that the therapist is not supposed to tell you what to do the therapist is supposed to be there to help you figure out what you yeah. want to do and reframe you know and just and be a sounding board and be somebody who can offer perspective you know and then it's up to you to figure out what you want to do with that and um, yeah it was recently I heard from a friend that it sounded like they had a therapist who had gone to the school of mind reading therapists and was telling him that like like this is what's wrong with you like and and this is this is the problem and this is what you should do and he was like this you know even when it directly contradicted his own experience you know and like this does not seem right to me and it just felt you know completely overbearing and you can't make a build a relationship with a therapist who you don't feel you know understands you um or listens to you um, and yeah, and I feel like that sort of therapy, you know, it works very dramatically well on TV and in movies and things like that, but it, you know, does not in at all. In the two minute sessions that we get, right? All <laughs> yeah. therapy sessions are two minutes long, 
you say one thing and then it's like okay bye i'll see you next week Uh, well i think a lot of the time that that to me i think it's used therapy is is like when therapy became like popular or common that must have seemed like a tremendous boon to writers right because you can just have your character say what they're thinking and what they're feeling and like and their perception of events and then you can have an external force push back against that and i feel like that's usually the role of the therapist in in tv and movies is not to not to get the character better but to give them something to react to you know in like a in like a a, and and goad them toward future behavior um it's it really (laughs) isn't like a patient gets better out of spite right or or they don't get better you know and the 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 goal of the writers is not to heal the character the goal of writers is rarely to heal the character it's to get them to do do to make this situation work exactly um so yeah I, i feel like that's probably part of it um but i think you know i mean i i haven't watched like hbo like in in treatment um have you watched that abigail uh, I've watched parts of it. I have never watched all of it. Um, I've heard I've heard pretty to, good things. But... Sorry, what was that? Oh, I've heard pretty good things. Is it like... Yeah, I've heard excellent things about it, and the episodes that I have watched have been great. Um, I think I've honestly avoided it more out of the fact that I know that it does get really real and deal with some things that I guess maybe I deal with enough at work and I don't particularly want to, to look at in my entertainment. Um, maybe a little more escapist uh, in my choices. Um, but I know that... Oh, well, we don't know anything about being escapist and yeah. choices. <laughs> That's completely uh, I mean, foreign to me. Back to go read Walden. <laughs> I know that it definitely really gets into... A lot of the things that other shows don't because it's really giving you a sense of of therapy over time and of the complexity of those relationships um you know and because of the way that it's set up first of all it doesn't need to serve the narrative function that you're talking about because the the therapy is the episode and so Mm -hmm. it's not about the therapy doing something for the characters it's about watching the therapy unfold um but also it gets into the the relationships that you have between the therapist and the patient and how intense those can be for both both people um you know and that i think is something that i find in most in most shows those kinds of things are either not there at all, like the therapist is just not a person, they're a function that's mm-hmm. kind of like that narrative function that you're talking about, um, which, look, maybe is how a lot of people experience their therapists, but but in an ideal therapy relationship, at least at some point, wouldn't be true. Um, or they go super far in the other direction and a lot of therapy relationships are hard for me to watch because there are major boundary violations that happen Mm. um like the number of television representations of therapy that feature the patient in the therapist's home 
makes me a little cuckoo. Um, mm-hmm. Like that should not be happening. Um, you know, it, I, I like the the times where you sort of see therapists mess up and have to deal with it. Those are always really interesting to me to watch. Um, but yeah, I think I think very often therapy and therapists are presented in this very brief way uh, that makes it hard to to show what therapy really is like. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's I interesting. I make great TV. Well, I, I, the the other show I'm I'm thinking of now, and I feel like um, we're we're slightly off topic, but it's okay because um, it's on topic. Um, but like Frasier definitely comes to mind. And from what I understand, the therapy such as it is on Frasier is not like super accurate. And a lot of the time it is but the butt of jokes, like especially early in the seasons. Like I remember Niles has, has some jokes where he's like, he's like always going off to his group sessions and he's like, you know, Oh, I can't, I can't be late. This is my, um, a, you know, attachment disorder people or, you know, you know, yeah. <laughs> whatever. Um, but at the same time, like, that show did really, A, like, you know, give give personality to people who work in mental health and also, like, very, very keenly discuss the mental health of its characters on occasion. Like, there are some episodes that just go very deeply into their psyches and, like, I don't know that it's necessarily you know psychologically accurate but it definitely read as emotionally accurate and just to take the time and and kind of really get elbow deep in why a character was feeling a certain way um I, yeah i found it like very very powerful in that way very smart yeah figures the best it's such a good show <laughs> <laughs> I think I've seen one episode, but I do not remember it at oh, all. Oh, it's really good, SM. I think you'd actually really like it. Um, yeah, it's a fun show to watch. Yeah. Um, it's also very I smart. I just remember, I like... think, seeing a poster for it, and, like, the tagline was shrink wrap. And <laughs> that was how I learned that shrink is slang for therapy. Therapist. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, uh, I, I, I highly recommend uh, checking out Frasier if you haven't. Um... But, um, yeah, so in terms of, like, do we, do we have any particularly, like, egregious examples or things that have stuck with us about particular characters who suffer from mental illness who we just don't feel like it's been done well? I mean, I don't, it's funny, because I'm not sure that I would say that there's anything that sticks out to me as particularly egregious so much as I would say that I think most representations are... I don't even know what the right word is. Like, they're consistently uh, off in similar ways. Yeah. Look, I think the, the major things that I see a lot of are, um, like, diagnosis as destiny. Mm. Um, and the way that they also will throw, like, ten diagnoses at somebody. Mm. Or they're using one diagnosis, but they're showing you symptoms of a whole bunch of different things all at once and it's clear to to me at least um if you have the the knowledge of the different 
agnostic groups that the writers were basically thinking, we want to make this guy crazy, so how can we make him look crazy? Um, <laughs> which is and not then they put the a name way on it. To, to approach representing mental health illness, in my opinion. I just have to call out um, the Joker and Harley Quinn um, as kind of serial examples of like I mean possibly the bottom of the barrel and maybe at some point throughout the canon of DC these characters have gotten you know better attention and and have had their illnesses fleshed out but like I feel like the whole thing about the Joker and Harley Quinn is just like well they're crazy like and they're evil because they're crazy and they're crazy And, like, then you can slap whatever words you want, uh, you know, multiple diagnoses on it. But, like, the end point is that they're not governed by logic because they're crazy. And, therefore, they're evil. And, like, it's, you know, I mean, we're not getting away from the idea of having the Joker in our culture. Like, how many Joker movies are they even making now? Like, three of them at the same time? Um, oh, God. But, you know, it's it's worth thinking about in... Um, and I think contributes to the way that then whenever anybody does something terrible, we automatically jump to, they must be crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, look, I think it's human. We don't want to acknowledge that human beings have the capacity to do terrible things. We want to believe that if that happens, something must have gone wrong. But the truth is that what's gone wrong is something that goes wrong in very normal ways and mental health is not an excuse um or rather mental health illness is not an excuse um so even when it does coexist with terrible behavior it is not the reason the terrible behavior happened yeah because you can like for every I mean, it does manifest, like you said, it manifests differently in different people, but also, like, for every person, you know, who has, you know, a particular, you know, mental illness, you can probably find, you know, a dozen nonviolent people for every violent one, you know, like, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily, you know, yeah, like you said, diagnosis is not destiny. Exactly. Um, so to move from there, um, to the things that we, uh, either like or or maybe maybe we should just talk about daredevil um (laughs) because uh um you know this season of daredevil we will have some minor spoilers uh for it but um there was a major can i talk about it because this is this is the reason that i proposed this episode go ahead take it away (laughs) yeah so i proposed this episode because while i was watching um this season of daredevil for um total background for people who don't know anything about Daredevil. Daredevil is about Matthew Murdock whose secret identity is Daredevil. Matthew Murdock is the secret identity. His superhero moniker is Daredevil and he is blind um, but his other senses are super duper enhanced so basically he can function you know like a sighted person. He basically can't read read. written text (laughs) and see pictures. That's pretty Uh, much it. Yeah, um, but yeah, and he lives in Hell's Kitchen in Manhattan, and he micromanages the heck out of that space, and he just, you know, is uh, is uh, basically the Batman of that area, and just like beats up all the criminals and whatever. And then there's there's 
villains and plot lines and all sorts of things happening. And I just I I love Daredevil because I love the main character. Um, and like the actor who plays him, I think is great. So even like when the character is making terrible choices, I'm just like, I love you anyway. Um, but the thing is, this season, um, it introduced a character um, whose name is uh, Special Agent Poindexter. Um, they call him Dex, and I'll call him Dex. Um, and he. Uh, He's played by an actor named Wilson Bethel, who I may have mentioned before because he um, was on Heart of Dixie as a regular for the entire run of the show. Um, he played the character of Wade Kinsella. Um, and this character is very, very different. Um, and he is um, a special agent with the FBI. And he also... Um, as you find out in um, episode five, which is where um, I told Abigail to watch this episode because yeah. like, while I was watching it, I was like, this is fascinating. I have not seen mental health portrayed in this way, and I really want to know, you know what actual mental health professionals think of this um, because it, um, the main villain... Um, in season one of the show, and then he's basically come back in season three. Um, Wilson Fisk, who is also known as Kingpin, um, has obtained the files of Special Agent Poindexter because he wants to manipulate him, and he wants to, you know, know what his weaknesses is and what his buttons are and what he can possibly, you know, do to turn him um, against the FBI or blackmail him into working for him or whatever. So he somehow manages to obtain his medical records, which include all of the therapy sessions that he um, had as a uh, child and all the way through his teen years. Um, and the way that the narrative incorporates this, it basically, it, it goes into like these black and white flashbacks um, where Fisk is basically a fly on the wall. It's kind of like a pensive in Harry Potter. Um, where he's just watching these events unfold of um, of little Dex um, acting out and then ending up in therapy and the relationship that his, he forms with his therapist, um, who is so different from most TV therapists because she doesn't, you know, tell him, you know, she doesn't talk down to him. Um, and she treats him, you know, with respect and as a human, like, even though one of the flaws is that she does make this, you know, shorthand diagnosis based on like very little information as far as we can tell, um, she doesn't act like I've diagnosed you. My work is done. This, there's nothing more I can do for you. This is the end, um, that you are, you are, you are, you are a psychopath and you have, I think she diagnoses him with borderline personality disorder, but she doesn't even say it out loud to him. Um, she just describes, you know, you know, he describes to her like what his, what his feelings are. And she, you know, explains how, you know, he can better adapt, you know, and make suggestions um, for how he can better behave and doesn't ever blame him for, you know, the way that he is. Um, and, 
I, you know, she just, you know, she treats him with dignity and respect and as a human, and there is a reciprocal relationship between her and him. And like, they, like Abigail was saying that there is a shortage of seeing the therapist as human. And I feel like she is in, in turn, she is treated as human in the way that she treats him as human. And it's just very different from what we normally see in therapy um, on TV. And um, it makes you really feel for both characters. Um, and I don't, you know, I'm not going to, I'm just going to talk about episode five because, um, yeah, no spoilers past episode five. So it's just, it, you, you learn his techniques and you learn his coping mechanisms and the way that they portray often his, um, his obsessive thoughts, um, the sound effects that they use, basically like a swarm of bees, which I thought was a very good creative choice. And then like once he, one of his techniques for um, calming down uh, is to listen to his previous sessions that he has recorded. I don't know how realistic it is that he would have these recordings, but um, he listens to the recordings and, you know, cause the logic is that, you know, when you see how far you've come, you feel, you know, you, you feel that like there's hope and that you've made progress. Um, so listening to past sessions is calming and reassuring. And he uses that um, to anchor himself and to ground himself. Um, and yeah, so like there'll be this like buzzing sound of bees and everything, and then he'll put the headphones on and then there's silence except for the voices on the headphones. And there's, I just, you know, I tend to relate to to the psychopaths because <laughs> just personally my, um, the way I interact with the world is more analytical and less emotional. Um, and like, I often look to other people for, you know, how would a normal human react in this situation? Like, I remember the Boston Marathon bombing and like, I wanted to be the one to tell other people what had happened so that I could observe their emotional responses. And because I didn't know myself how to react to this. I didn't like, it was too big and, you know, and like, it was obviously terrible, but I didn't know how does this person react to this? So like, I would tell other people and then I would observe their reactions and it's kind of like this gets filed away in my brain as like this is an appropriate response to this situation you know and like I know that that's not how everybody handles emotion you know or at least not necessarily as consciously as as me you know but it's like seeing it in a character you know just like taken to an extreme um, you know so I, I relate to you know to it to a lesser degree and like you know my detachment or emotional you know detachment doesn't make me want to hurt people if anything it just makes me you know disinterested in you know being around people and whatever but uh you know his uh is obviously you know different um in, in degree and he has a lot more you know problems that he has to deal with but um, it does give you the therapy, especially, um, gives you the sense that like, you know, this is a, you know, terrible condition, but it can be managed. And, um, and I just, I felt like that was an unusual message, um, to give, especially, you know, for, for a, a potential villain. 
Well, and so I, I was wondering what Avi Gaia thinks about. So, that. I mean, I, I, just just to say for myself before before we turn to the professional, um, I I was also really drawn to that character, and I, I think a lot of the reasons why are because of what you said, SM. But I think also, to me, um, it was one of the first kind of sympathetic or empathetic portrayals of somebody with like borderline personality disorder with like a a major personality disorder somebody who is capable and untroubled by violence um by extreme violence you know and and to look into that and and kind of understand its origins and consider where it comes from and how it could be dealt with um i found to be really really powerful um and you know in terms of the therapy i just you know i i I was kind of led along the um you know the the the, what you expect from a normal therapy you know like this this child who's just done something horribly wrong um because he has personality disorder is you know sitting with a therapist and you know she's writing down diagnoses on her on her pad and like you're not really expecting this to go in an empathetic kind of way <laughs> you know you're expecting the next <laughs> yeah. scene to like see him like you know loaded up on medication in, a, in an in an institution which to be honest it's you can make the argument that that's a, that's where ducks should be but um that's a different I conversation think he, though. he needed to continue therapy yes that's um. for sure <laughs> um <laughs> that, that bare minimum absolutely um but i think like to, to me that relationship of somebody being there who wanted to help him and willing to see the bright side of him when that was hard to see um was really interesting and just you know like it, there's always a bit of a risk with characters like this especially when they're as well acted as as you know they are in this case because Wilson Bethel is oh, he's so good. incredible um so- but there's always there's always that risk of getting a little bit like like ish with them like oh poor baby it's not his fault like no a lot of this is his fault you know and that's a very difficult line to walk but I I really found it very interesting that the show kind of chose to walk it and may, maybe I'm guilty of like the like you know uh, it's 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 not as bad as other things therefore it's good or whatever um (laughs) that we were talking about before but i i do think that there's something to the you know to to attempting to walk that line um you know and 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 give understanding to characters who in other in other contexts would really just be like the joker yeah look i definitely agree i think there was a lot that was really well done in it um and then there were a bunch of things that, you know, were like, like that itchy tag in the back of your collar for me. Mm-hmm. Um, tell I us, think tell us. Because it was so well done. And I actually, I, I think so much of it was that his performance was really fantastic. Um, so I really, I think that, that that's a big part of it, that I think his performance was really sensitive and you felt like the actor empathized with the character. And I think a lot of times when you watch performances of mental health problems, it's done in a way that feels like the actor is aware of the humor in the situation or the drama in the situation. They're hamming it up. Right. And it it actually reminds me when I was in college, I I took an acting class and I remember when we were doing comedy scenes and the the teacher said, 
when you play this, I want you to play it completely seriously. Like for you, there's nothing funny here. Um, and I think that that's a lot of the way he played it was that for him, this was the, this is the way that he sees the world. And he really, I felt was really deeply embedded in the character. And I think that made it a lot more sympathetic, um, as opposed to like a curiosity that we're watching, um, with some kind of a distance. I think, so the things that bothered me, um, the diagnosis that she gives him at the beginning was a big part of it for me. Um, yeah, like how how do you go about diagnosing a personality disorder like that? Like, so you can't possibly all, just do it by talking to them for five minutes. Personality disorder like that in a kid? Yeah, like, not in children at all, right? Like children are completely I mean, off limits from this. Diagnosis is only applicable once you're eighteen. Like it, it's not mm-hmm. personality patterns. We don't consider to be fixed in a child that young. Um, so that's, that's the first thing. Um, the second thing is that I think it was the show's way of trying to shorthand for you mm-hmm. what they wanted adult Dex's personality to be because adult Dex does seem to be, uh, you know, not necessarily terribly dysfunctional at the beginning, um, but he does have some of the borderline tendencies there's clearly you know uh a fear of abandonment uh tendency to anger and impulsivity um particularly when triggered by a fear of abandonment um people with borderline tend to have a lot of intense relationships where they can see people as all good or all bad but it's hard Mm. to see them as a little good and a little bad. And it can flip so, from one to the other on a dime. I hate you, I love you. Ugh. Now I hate you again, now I love you again. But it's hard to realize that you can hate someone you love sometimes. Um, and I think the way they draw him as an adult, like, I don't know that I would diagnose him as borderline if, if I saw him in my office, but that might also just be my bias because borderline tends to be diagnosed more often in women. We see the same patterns in men and think of them differently. Um, But the way he was presenting at that point, certainly with, with what they gave us, there was no reason to think of him in those terms at that point. So that kind of Mm. bugged me because I felt like the reason it was written down was so that you knew how to label him as an adult and not because of anything that had already happened. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, there was some black and white thinking already. Um, I think when he talks about his coach and he sort of like, he used to be great and then he was a jerk. Um, that's a little bit of that, that splitting, that like good, bad. Um, but that's also mm-hmm. kind of normal in kids. kids yeah, because kids don't have a grasp of nuance and that doesn't mean they're all psychotic. Right. What what he did have clearly at that point were the sociopathic tendencies. Mm-hmm. The and it's interesting because you you were talking about sort of detachment from emotionality. 
And I think what's striking in Dex, even when he's nine years old, is the detachment from and the 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 way that he sort of seemed able to observe, you know, he, he killed his coach and then sort of just, you know, can go back to drawing and is totally, totally unfazed by it. Um, and I think that, you know, the way that we categorize antisocial personality um, in our current diagnostic system is very behavioral. It's actually much more about behavior than internal experience. Mm -hmm. um, but when we talk about sort of psychopathy or sociopathy, a lot of the times what we mean is the ability to see somebody in pain or somebody hurt and to sort of observe it with this sort of coldness so that you're not just not feeling their pain, but you can look at that pain and think about how it can serve you. Um, and that the experience of everybody else is through the lens of what is it going to get me? Um, so I, I wasn't crazy about the way they handled the diagnostic stuff, but I think that that's because they were using it as shorthand for the audience and not trying to think about how she would be handling things. Um, the other mm -hmm. issue I had with it was that there was, I think, a little bit, and it's part of it is reflected in that diagnostic approach, a little bit of like throw it all at him and see what sticks. Like at the beginning of the episode where you see him and he seems kind of more in the OCD realm, he needs all the mug handles to be facing in a particular way, he's very tidy. Um, and that, that they then sort of use that as a shorthand to like get into the fact that he has, this guy has issues, um, which they then translate into personality disorder. I think I found that a little frustrating. Um, but the truth is that what I think they did really well was, and this is sort of what I was saying before, the nuance of his having this personality structure that you can see it and you can feel for him and you can feel, you know, ironically, because he doesn't have that empathy, but we as audience members have can have so much empathy for how painful this must be for him. Um, and I thought that it was a really nuanced performance and that the, the other thing I loved was in the termination session with the therapist. Um, I mean, look, in reality, a termination of a case like that would be something that had happened over the course of months, and they would have... Yeah, and they would have like, had a backup and, plan and like transferred him right. to somebody. Like They would have had some system in place. Exactly. They would have talked already about how hard it was for him to be leaving and how he didn't want to work with another therapist. She probably would have had him start with whoever she was transferring to so that there could be some overlap and they could talk as they process the end of their work about his shifting to someone else. Um, but when he becomes so angry at her and he tells her that he wants to kill her for dying, that was probably the most honest portrayal of a moment in therapy that I've ever seen. Um, 
and I loved it so much because that really got at the rawness of the intensity of these kinds of relationships when you've worked with somebody for so long and they do become really meaningful to you. And I thought that was exactly how he would have felt and exactly how he would have responded. And it felt very true. Um, and I really loved that moment in particular. Um, yeah, that, that honestly, that moment was a big standout for me. And I know um, SM and I have discussed a little bit about like, um, and by discuss, I mean, we talked about it on Facebook. Um, like, Isn't that how one has discussed? Yes, exactly. It is. <laughs> um, just like how, you know, the, the like ups and downs of the therapist and like, like the both positive things she does and seeing him as human and somebody with an illness. Um, and then the negative things, which is like, you need to invest uh, all of your mental uh, wellness in the idea of one person who will guide you to the yeah. right thing um and i think that that's what definitely it's definitely <laughs> wrong and it's definitely bad but to me it actually i don't know maybe like just the actress who played the therapist was just good and i and i got that from her but i i felt like she was really genuine that this was a flaw that she had that was not like oh all therapists are like this it was just like it to me it seemed like a very specific experience of hers that she had connected with Dex on this level and was serving as that North star for him. Um, and she just kind of convinced herself that that was what he needed. And like, I, I don't know that that's a good portrayal of therapy, but I think that it's like a very human one. And like in terms of a therapist, like really being very, very well-intentioned and very compassionate um, and not always doing the right thing. And un unfortunately, just not having the chance that, to fix like, it, you know. That she's so hopeful. Like, mm -hmm. if you won't go to therapy, all you need is just find a person. That's all you need. Um, yeah, I, I liked, I especially liked um, the line that that they use is that your moral compass isn't broken. It just functions better when you have someone to guide you. Um, and, like, I totally relate to that in general, just, like, as, as a person in the world, you know, like, you cannot be eternally your own moral compass, you know, like, you need outside checks on your, you know, like, so it's like, whenever I'm not sure about something, like, I don't, but I try not to invest all of my, you know, moral judgment, you know, and relying on one person, like, I'll, you know, there are a group of people who have, you know, judgment that I trust, you know, and I will, you know, run it by, you know, multiple people i mean listen right like it's uh you know yeah it's uh it's definitely like, a jewish concept too yeah <laughs> yeah uh michal i don't know that what, what it what oh it's um it's uh you know um have have a teacher yeah pirkeavos have a teacher and have a friend basically um and you know there's obviously there's a lot of different explanations for that phrase, but um, like the, the, the basic the idea is of like establish for yourself right. uh, a rabbi and acquire for yourself a friend. And what does that mean? And what are what's entailed in those relationships? Yeah, um, but the the you know the the basic concept for our purposes being that you know people do need guidance and need people to um, you know to to serve as their you know north star if you want it wanted to put it that way. Um, Look, I think P 
people, human beings are interdependent creatures. You know, I tell my patients all the time and nobody can do this on their own. Some people are lucky enough to have parents who help them do it. Most of us need help from other people too, you know, and that's something that therapy can be and friends can be and partners can be and all sorts of different relationships can be helpful and healing along that journey. Um, you know, I think the thing for me about Dex was what was so poignant to me was that in other circumstances, I think his life story could have gone very differently. Um, you know, oh, he and, could have been a hero in in some other, you know, like yeah. that. Th- those qualities of being that passionate and being that um, dedicated to something are are, you know, I mean, to to talk about Harry Potter even a little bit, we have because we have to talk about Harry Potter a little bit if we're talking about people <laughs> <laughs> who struggle. Um, you know, Harry's whole thing is is like the the whole idea is that Harry could have gone. Uh, down see, the wrong path, right? Like his quality. Jewishly speaking, um, there's the whole David Hamelach versus mm-hmm. Esau, and how they have you know very similar qualities, and they're described in very similar ways, and they both have some kind of thirst for blood, but they had to you know they found different ways to satisfy it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, to just to wrap up a little bit, um, I want to ask you one more question, Abigail. Um, for people who are doing doing the work of making the art <laughs> and yeah. the the stories and all the things, um, what what do you want to see in terms of portrayals of mental illness and therapy? Um, it's an excellent question, um, and I think the number one thing I would say is just a greater variety of of ways that we can see it woven in. You know, these things are so common and so many people struggle with so many different kinds of things. Um, I would say first and foremost, the things that get portrayed most often are the loudest ones. Mm -hmm. Um, And part of that is because that can make for the best TV. Um, But I would love to see more stories that incorporate in some small way, you know, the, the mom who's constantly running around and doing a zillion things because her anxiety won't let her slow down or, you know, the guy who can't get up to go to work today because he's just feeling too depressed. Um, and those sort of, those sort of things can be incorporated in small and subtle ways. They don't need to be the full, focus of the story it doesn't need to be the entire arc you know even just having having people who are taking pills or talking about going to their therapy even if you don't show it um can just normalize the fact that these are things that people struggle with all the time and there's nothing wrong with struggling and there's nothing wrong with getting help in that struggle um so i guess if I was going to ask for one thing, it would be more normalization of both the struggles and the treatment. Mm. Um, because I think that would be so powerful for so many people. Um, just to know that you're not alone, whatever you're dealing with. 
Yeah, no, that's 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 awesome, and I totally agree. Um, as somebody who deals with some mental health issues myself, obviously, um, and I, I just to take it all the way back to my uh, my um, obsession for this week, actually, uh, the calculating stars. The main character also deals with like some some anxiety issues um, that are that affect her quite prevalently in certain areas of her life. Um, and not in all areas of her life, and it, it was actually a very good portrayal. Um, so once again, I recommend that book. It's it's a real good one. Um, I would say the other thing is if people are going to be including mental health as a facet of a character, like just looking at the mental health, whether they're portraying it as like, this is a strength, this is a weakness in whatever way, um, talk to people who are experiencing that I think the best representations that I've seen have been in places where members of the community are consulted and they're brought in and they're talked to um, because as with any representation getting the voices of the people you're representing is always going to make it better Um, it won't make it perfect but we don't need and perfect. don't ignore what they say, like in 13 Reasons Why. Yes. That, that <laughs> is a particularly egregious example. That's what we were missing earlier. 13 Reasons Why was an egregious one. Um, not because its representation was so inaccurate, but because its representation was so dangerous and irresponsible. Um that is actually probably I think I had blocked it out because it was such an egregious example of what not to do when representing mental health and also um, available on Netflix yeah <laughs> don't tell anyone no one watch it <sighs> if you keep watching it they'll make more of it right that's true um, okay so I think we're gonna we're gonna end it there but thank you so much Abigail for joining us um, this is really wonderful and you gave us a lot of really great insight um, Thank you so much for letting me be a part of this. It's of really course, cool of course. Is there anywhere where people can find you online? Do you want to share anything like that? or? Um, in general, the, the best way to reach out to me if you want to is uh, through my website, which is www.putitincontext.com. Nice. <laughs> um, and you can kind of find me there and a little bit about the way that I work. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, and as for... Uh, SM, where can people find you on the internet place? Um, you can find me on Facebook. I have been making memes about anti-Semitism lately, so <laughs> there's that. <laughs> um, and uh, you can get my fiction on my uh, Amazon author page. Um, that's amazon.com slash author slash SM Rosenberg. And how about you, Tamar? Uh, you can find my writing on billboard.com and forbes.com, and you can follow me on Twitter at Tamar Ray. Awesome. And as for me, you can find me on Twitter at Ink as Rain and most of my writing at Hypable.com. Um, if you want to check out our uh, New York Comic Con panel, it is now available on our YouTube channel. We'd love it if you would watch and let us know what you think. Also, please find us on Twitter at Jewish Fangirls and on all other platforms as Nice Jewish Fangirls. Please do leave us a rating and review on iTunes. We have a couple of annoying people who have 
rated us fairly uh, low down, um, and it it bothers me. Um, and uh, yeah, so if you could just they give just us miss the point. Yes, they exactly. Um, if you could just give us a positive review, uh, review if you have time, uh, write a couple words. Um, it would be it would be very greatly appreciated, and maybe we'll read it on the podcast. Uh, you can also email us at nicejewishfangirls at gmail Find Jewish Coffee House at jewishcoffeehouse.com. And uh, I think that's going to do it for us tonight. Uh, But thank you so much for listening and live long and prosper, everybody. I can't. I like I, I made my tea with um, tea leaves and I can't figure out if I let it seep too long because I forgot that it was seeping or if they're still in my cup but it's so bitter right now oh no I don't know what I did I mean I know what I I know I did something I don't know what that something is <laughs> can I use that as an outtake at the end sure <laughs>